All right. Hello, beautiful humans, and welcome back to another episode at the Bitcoin Stoa. As a reminder, this is a community-funded project. So if you enjoy listening, you can support our work by sending some sats to the QR code on our homepage at bitcoinstoa.com. And you can also stream sats using a Bitcoin wallet that has a podcast feature. Right now I'm using Breeze Wallet um, and I'm experimenting with Fountain and they both have really good experiences. So try them out if you haven't already. Current Moscow time is 26.16 at 7.34, And with that said, it is my honor to welcome John Vallis to the STOA for our conversation about health. So John, welcome. Nick, thanks for having me, man. I'm really looking forward to this. Oh, well, it's, you know, I'm grateful for your time. Uh, we're all busy and I think the most, Bitcoiners are very generous with their time and that always astounds me and it gives me inspiration to kind of live up to. But I've really been looking forward to this conversation since last week, sort of when we scheduled it. Um, for those listening, if you don't already know John, he's a leading podcaster and writer in the Bitcoin space. So I encourage you to explore his work. It's very powerful stuff. Um, and John, I want to personally thank you for your work because your podcast with Michael Saylor about um, you know Bitcoin as empowerment is really what inspired me to focus sort of my life energy on mastering the art and science of orange pilling um, and shifting full time into that. So you know it's been a very rewarding journey so far, and without you creating that content, it it might not have happened. So thank you. Well, that brings me great joy to hear that. Amazing. And you so, know, I think I think part of the reason why Bitcoiners are so generous with their time is twofold. One there's this like missionary component of things where you, you know that these conversations will serve that purpose. And so, you know, you want to contribute to the orange pilling of the world, as it were. Uh, and then every Bitcoiner is thinking about Bitcoin at all times and they want to talk about it. You know, they, they need an outlet for that. And so that's yep. I think that's those two reasons are why we're so um, willing to participate in these sorts of things beyond the fact that, you know, I'm, I'm a huge fan of yours as well. And it's you know just a pleasure Thanks, to brother. get to jam with you. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I'd add an element, element number three, when you use money that doesn't steal your time, you end up having a surplus of, of time, um, which I, I think we can connect that into health uh, throughout our conversation. But today is going to be focused on health. Usually we open up store episodes with hearing people's Bitcoin story, um, but I don't want to waste any time. And I'm, you know, I figured a good place to start, you know, you mentioned through Twitter, through our messages that health has been a big part of your life. And I'm an, I'm a big proponent of the power of story. And so how about we start with your health story and then we can get into discussing and unpacking specific concepts related to health. But I guess, um, you know, to frame this, it's how has health played a role um, in your life personally and maybe share some of the more memorable experiences or inflection points along the way that have sort of shaped who you are today and your current view of health. So let's start sure. there and floor is yours. Um, you know, we've got the time today, so this might be a longer winded response than I've given in, okay. in, uh, in previous stuff. But but also if I like my I got choked out hard yesterday in jujitsu, speaking of health. So my, <laughs> my throat is a little bit sore. All so good. if I'm not coming through as clearly as usual, I apologize. <clears throat> um, where to start? I mean, usually the story goes something like I was a fat kid. Um, you know, I loved cookies and candy and all that jazz when I was a kid. And like my parents tried to feed us well, you know, throughout the week. And then on the weekend we could have pizza and that kind of jazz. But, you know, there was a corner store 50 yards from our house and I would go there all the time with like, you know, the, the change I'd scrounged up from the couch cushions and just go get sour candies and, you know, eat it with my buddies on the street. And I guess part of the redeeming quality that 
like we, we played outside a lot. So we were active, you know, which seems to be a foreign concept, um, you know, in the current era for young kids. But nevertheless, I, I, I was not considering health at all as a youngster. And so uh, and I guess I just had a disposition to be larger, you know, so um, slow metabolism, perhaps who knows. But anyways, I was a fat kid and and I was always kind of tall. So that it meant that it wasn't as apparent. But like when I, I think I was 200 pounds when I was 13 or something like that. Um, but in any case, I the thing that I remember the most about kind of starting the journey was my dad and I were into like camping and hiking and that kind of stuff. And we were in sport check one day and uh, there was like one of those camping lighters, you know, good in the wind and the rain and upside down and, you know, all that jazz. And it was 50 bucks. And uh, I was, I made a bet with my dad that if I didn't eat any junk for a month that he would get me the lighter. And I guess as a father, you know, he was more than happy to hear me, you know, any opportunity to get me, he was a very active guy, right? He, he used to do triathlons when he was younger and into a lot of sports, like always very active. And um, so I can imagine he was more than happy to, you know, take that wager. <clears throat> do you think he thought you and, would succeed? I don't know. I mean, I got to think he, he was, he was hoping for the best and he was optimistic, but you know, he'd probably seen just how, uh, what I was like prior to that. Maybe he didn't have much hope, but in any case, I, I did do it and I didn't have cookies and I didn't have candy and all that jazz for a month. And I lost 15 pounds and I thought, wow, that's cool. And then I did it for another month and lost another 15 pounds. And then I, you know, I was just like, fuck the lighter. I, this is way cooler. You know? So, <laughs> you know, you, you start seeing like veins pop out of your hands and arms where like yeah. it was just chub before and you're like, wow, I want, I want more of this, you know? And so <clears throat> I think that was at something, you know, 12, 13 years of age. And so I started like being more cognizant of what I was putting in my body. And I started being more active and got into like weightlifting a lot, uh, back then, you know, it was funny in preparation for this discussion today. I was yesterday, I was just thinking about like how this journey started. And, you know, when I first got going on it, like I was reading, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger's books on, on bodybuilding and like, Cause that was the thing at the time. Like if you wanted to be, I don't know, fit at, in that era, at least it seemed to me like everyone just lifted weights and tried to be jacked. Right. And so, yep. you know, you start getting the protein powder from the local supplement shop and you're reading flex magazine and you're listening to Arnie's documentary and Ronnie Coleman and all those people. And um, so anyways, that, that was kind of it. And I still played sports, play tennis, play basketball and stuff in high school, but like, I, I really started watching what I was putting in my body. And like, of course, what I thought was quote unquote healthy then is very different than what I think of as healthy now. So like the intervening well, 15 years, 20, almost 20 years. Yeah. Over 20 years, actually, <laughs> fuck, uh, has been, <laughs> you know, a, a journey of, of figuring out what, what works best for my body, what makes me feel best, what makes me perform best. And, you know, nobody's perfect, so it kind of waxes and wanes, but it's been interesting to always be on that journey. And so, but I realized quite early on, um, willpower alone was not, was going to be exhausting. You know, like if you just, he's like, oh, I need to go to the gym today because if I don't, I'll, I'll go backwards and I won't get to where I want to go. And I, and if I, or if it's a food, like, oh, I really want to eat this, but if I do, and you know, like, oh, staying away from the Nutella that's in the cupboard, it's so hard. And so I started to think like, 
I started to recognize that belief was not something that you really chose. Like you acted on beliefs, right? Beliefs kind of come natural to you. And then you can determine whether or not you're going to act in conformity with them, or you're going to try to oppose them to some degree. Right. And so like just relying on willpower felt like, felt like opposing like a, it felt like opposing what my body wanted to do. And I thought if I could align my belief with what I wanted the outcome to be, then the act would be much easier. Mm. It would come naturally. And, but, but then it begs the question like, yeah, well, how do you instill belief? How do you cultivate belief? You can't just tell yourself, Hey, believe this to be true or believe this thing, because that's not how it works, which is really interesting, right? It's like, well, where do our default beliefs or, or thoughts or preferences come from? You don't decide if you like a certain food or not. You either do or you don't, and you act on it. I think the so, environment, you know, people often discount the impact of, sorry to interrupt, but like the impact uh, of the environment, right? You can have um, the most intentional beliefs and desire and even discipline to act a certain way. But at the end of the day, the environment, the invisible hand that is the environment around us is such a powerful force in shaping our behavior that you can have stone cold beliefs and discipline, but put yourself in an environment where the temptation to eat the wrong things or do the wrong things is there. And it's like swimming upstream. And so I think, yeah. you know, like, I just think the environment is such an important element that people underestimate. Um, and the beauty about the environment is you make a one-time change, you now have a totally different context to act within. Whereas instead of having to decide each time, you decide once not to put the foods you don't want to eat in your house, you don't have to decide again. So yeah, yeah that's an interesting point. No, that's definitely, you got to do that, right? That's, that's like kind of step one to make sure you're not enticing yourself unnecessarily, right? right? But even still, I found that, you know, the, the, the actions that would lead to the outcome I was seeking were not the ones that came most naturally, the, the mm -hmm. ones that I most wanted to take naturally. And so, you know, I started to wonder about like, how does one cultivate belief? And, you know, that leads you down the inquiry of, you know, psychology and philosophy and, you know, all sorts of tangential fields of, of study or inquiry around just, you know, basic health, because that run, you know, the idea of what your beliefs are and from where they're, from where you derive them is like extremely fundamental to who we are. And I just, I think that the outcome of that pursuit was and I mean, this is, this pretty much runs as deep as you can in, in the, in the spiritual or theological or religious domains. It's like, it seemed to me that the only way to, to do that was to try to orient, to try to perceive as clearly as possible truth, and then orient yourself around that. And like, if, if truth was the main aim, I guess there's a type of faith in that, that if you're perceiving and pursuing truth to the extent the maximum extent possible, then the behaviors that that's going to elicit will be beneficial to you. And, you know, that I think that is like an article of faith almost about how all this stuff is constituted. And so the name of the game for me then became like, how do I like establish as much clarity as possible? And that's mostly in the realm of like conscious consciousness and conscious thinking. And so because, I mean, you think about it, we know that like your gut bacteria affects your thoughts and your energy levels and your perception to a certain degree, right? Serotonin and stuff like that. We know the same is true for what stimulants you've had 
throughout the course of the day. The same is true for whether you had, you know, fat and protein or carbs in the morning. Same is true as whether you had a good sleep or not, or whether you had a fight with a spouse or whether you've had sunlight or whether you've had time in nature, like all of these things affect your perception. And so the question is, is like, well, what does perception look like when it's minimally influenced by these extraneous factors? And, you know, the, the answer to that question, or the reason why I think the idea of purifying the body shows up in so many different spiritual traditions throughout the world, doesn't, you know, Asia, South America, Europe, pretty much everywhere, is because is for that reason because these practices were kind of meant to remove both the physiological and the psychological or conscious impediments to seeing truth as clearly as possible and and allowing that to be integrated fully into your you know body mind and spirit as it were and um so you know i started to that i shouldn't say i started that kind of change in me create started to create a reorientation around my automatically doing the things that would most facilitate that clarity that I I thought was the most valuable thing in pursuing truth to the extent that it was possible to do so and so that meant that like well all the things that went into that which over the course of 20 years I've discovered are uh, you know, working the body hard and often so that you kind of flush out the system, you get a good sweat, you get your lungs burning, doing so in nature, if possible, doing so early in the morning, you know, having certain dietary, uh, following a certain dietary regimen that seems to work for me, which broadly speaking, or simply speaking is, you know, fats and protein in the morning and carbs pushed to the evening when, you know, I'd, Cause, cause, and I do that because the carbs tend to like, maybe as a result of an insulin dump or something, they kind of make me drowsy or sleepy. And so pushing that to, to the end of the day, and then obviously getting a good sleep and cultivating good relationships and engaging in meaningful work, like all these things are part of that overarching attempting to engage with truth as, you know, as much as possible. But what I found, and this goes back to the point about belief, is like, because that's so genuine, all the different activities required to make that happen are effortless. Mm -hmm. It's like, I don't, it's not a matter of discipline for me to go for a run or to have a workout or anything like that. Like, because I know that those things are going to lead to the state that I most desire. Right. Right. So it's like, I'm not, I'm not fighting myself anymore. It's all very... Yeah, it's, it's lined up and it, in, in, it seems like the proper way, not to say that I've perfected it. And as you go through life, you find all these little tweaks that make that better. And you find um, you, you learn more and you integrate what you learn. But the punchline is, is like most of this is consciously oriented. So like my for the last several years, my ambitions for my health and my physiology, I guess, have to, been to focus on what most fosters clarity in my mind. And it seems to be the case that if I do those things, many of which I just listed, what happens physiologically in the body will be acceptable to me. Like we'll fall, it, it will also be good for the body and to the extent that, and, and it's acceptable to me. And so part of that is another thing is like, I don't, I mentioned, I used to, you know, when I first got into weightlifting when I was 15 or so, you know, I'd buy 
the you know optimum nutrition protein powder and read the magazines all the jazz but now like for me a potential impediment or dependency is not being able to maintain the regimen that's delivering that clarity no matter where i might be in the world or in whatever circumstance and so at this point i don't want to integrate anything that i can't maintain within reason anywhere you know and so you know that means for me like i don't and this may change but for the last you know decade plus i don't lift weights it's all body weight stuff that i can do out near like a, a tree branch or on the beach or on a running trail or something like that no supplements or you know it's all natural food that's broadly available anywhere you might go uh, you know it's, it's just that there's no real dependencies that make it unmaintainable no matter where i might be in the world and um yeah, like you talk about truth and to me like this whole notion of um default settings right like I, I think almost the belief of trusting that our physiology is extremely impressive i think that has to be a fundamental belief that people hold in order for them to trust that this machine you know like my first principles with health are the body adapts to what i uh, expose it to my body is a self-organizing system and a self-healing system so mm. All of the work of having to try and micromanage or make sure my body's doing the right thing sort of gets pushed off. And it's like, all I have to do is give my body the right inputs, the inputs that align with my natural biology, right? To restore my default settings, which are healthy, resilient, strong, um, and basically peaceful. Like that is the health, that is the default state of human beings. And so health then becomes not necessarily seeking external things to add. It sort of becomes the process of mindful experimentation where you experiment with subtracting things from your life that may have gotten you off the path of default settings. And yeah, I just think we've, we, you know, I would even love to hear your thoughts on this because you ask a hundred people how they define health, you'll get a hundred different answers and they'll vary widely. Um, and I, I think fundamentally health should be a subjective term because each of us must craft our own definition of health, which we then um, make a decision to pursue, right? I can't tell you what health is. You can't tell me what health is. Um, but I think it's important to develop a, sort of a, a sense of meaning in what health is, right? Like, you know, people, people sometimes ask me, what do I do to be healthy? I'm like, well, how do you define health? And they can't define it. It's like, well, you just asked me how to get to a place you don't, that you don't even know of. So you're probably not going to get there. Right. Um, so how do you define health? Like in simple terms, in a sentence or two, how would you um, define health and sort of where, how has that manifested through your experience? How have, has your experience brought you to that definition and how does that definition serve you um, in the practice of health? The one that comes immediately to mind is just optimal, optimal fittedness for your aims or optimal fitness for your aims, right? Maybe that's why we call it fitness, right? And that's, you know, why we use the term fitness in nature when we're talking about evolution, evolutionary fitness, right? Like how fit is the organism for its environment and for its, you know, ambitions or aims or goals within that environment. And that's probably, you know, like you can put more words on it, right? And, it's, you know, maybe to be strong or to be healthy, to be fast or to be all this kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, I mean, I think as far as the discussion we've been having so far, it's like, it seems like one of my overarching aims is the establishment of greater clarity such that I might perceive greater truth in a, you know, in a, in a nutshell. And it would seem to be the case that my efforts in the quote unquote health or fitness realm have been to facilitate that. And so it seems like 
what I'm trying to do is make myself more fit for the aim that I'm striving for. And as your aim changes, so too must your fitness, right? Like I think yeah. an important part that I think people misconstrue with health is they view health as a destination, right? It could be an image. It could be I was just pain free. That, yeah. And like the whole notion that, um, it's a process sort of gets lost on people, I think. And, you know, not being able to reach this destination you formed in, you know, based on basically your programming of what people told you health is not mm. being able to reach that ephemeral state is what gets people sort of, um, down and out that they're not able to be healthy. But if you view health as the process of just learning how to take better care of yourself, um, then health is achievable to everyone, right? Like the person yeah. who's 250 pounds overweight might get a little bit discouraged if they look at health as like some shredded physique on a magazine. It's like, oh, I'm so far from that. But I think the whole notion of instilling in people that health is a process, mostly of learning um, about yourself, and how to take better care of yourself. And that health is like the end. Um, health is the output of many small inputs consistently done over time. Not like mm -hmm. these mega doses of um, resolutions. Um, and yeah, just this whole notion that health is a lifelong process. And your definition of being fit for the aims that you're striving towards. And then the idea that our aims change constantly as the world changes means that your fitness must be constantly reevaluated and realigned with those aims. Um, I think yeah. that's true. I, I, the only caveat I would add is that the aim that I've been describing of, you know, greater clarity of perception around capital T and all lowercase T truths, I think that encompass, like there'll be smaller aims within that, right? Like if I, if I ever want to train for like a Spartan race or a triathlon or a particular occupation, like you're right. And that will alter the regimen, but in terms of like the overarching, cause it's, it's, you know, if you're just beginning on this, like if I was talking with my mom or something and trying to give her advice, cause she kind of falls into the category you mentioned, where like these fits and starts and it's overly ambitious at the beginning. And then there's demotivation and all that stuff. And so I think like incremental and directional is important when you're just getting started. But once you like flip the switch, th this will sound corny, but like when I'm out for a trail run, for example, I'm not like, I'm not saying I need to do this to be delivered to the state that I want afterwards. The doing of it is the deliverance of the state. Ooh. You know, there's residual effects, but like it's a... <laughs> This is super corny, but it's like a celebration when it's happening. Like I, it, like I love everything about those states, both the challenge of them and the feeling in the moment and the feedback with your own body, like the sense of being in it and being sensitized to the environment. And, you know, uh, the, like, yeah, when, like, like when that switch that I was trying to find words to articulate earlier, like, it's not just that it becomes easy to accept the work necessary for the outcome. It's that the very work becomes an integral and enjoyable part of what's being delivered as the outcome, you know, so they're not separated really. Um, yeah. And like, I, I can appreciate. Not a means to an end. The work itself uh, is the end. Right. Right. And I mean, again, this is also, this language could be transposed to religious or spiritual language that's been written of, you know, for thousands of years as well. And I think there's a reason for that. It's because if your aim is oriented towards 
let's say the highest aim, however you might articulate that, then the means by which you move closer to the aim is, is literally the reward because mm. that's what you're aiming. That's what you're trying to do. Right. Yeah. I mean, the hard part is how do we, how do you articulate that? Right. Like, the, <laughs> you know, and it, yeah, I mean, it's very profound because I couldn't agree more. It's like, it's not, I don't look at buying real food versus delicious mouth pleasure for five minutes. I don't look at that as like something I have to work hard to do. Like I want to do that mm -hmm. because I know, and it's almost like, I think the mindful element of, you know, mindful experimentation, meaning that go in with an open mind and explore health broadly, try a bunch of different things, even wacky things, but it must be done with enough mindfulness so that you remember, remember what works and what doesn't, right? Mm -hmm. Because the five minutes of mouth pleasure is amazing. You can eat a whole chocolate cake. It's great. But what is the like two or three hours later, what does that look like? And if you remember how shitty you feel after that, the five minutes of most pleasure doesn't become worth it, right? Like the, it's almost like you develop a lower time preference with health as a whole, as you do experiments and really tune into the effects, not just at the time, but like later on. Um, and you learn to, to realize the things that make you feel better in the long term are often hard work in the short term. And so, mm -hmm. you know, I'd love to hear your thoughts on like, Health is a lot of work in an environment built around disease. Health can be a lot of work. Obviously mm -hmm. you can put yourself in an environment that is conducive to health and it's not as much work as it is just living. But I think for a lot of people, health is a lot of work. It requires energy to tune yourself into the process of taking better care of yourself and seeing what works and what doesn't. So what would you say is your, I mean, you've already kind of talked on this, but I always love to understand people's primary motivation for the work. Because without the motivation, maybe the work um, is not as attractive or is harder to do. Um, so what motivates you to be health, to, to follow the pursuit of health? Yeah, I'll, I will answer that. But I just want to say on, on your prior point, <clears throat> like I still eat like on Saturday nights when the UFC fights are on, me and my girlfriend, we buy, we get a whack of pizza, get a whack of beer, get some brownies for dessert and we go hog on it. Like <clears throat> it's, I don't think like as we've been discussing, like if, it, if you're strictly trying to adhere to a rigid and basically arbitrary or somewhat arbitrary notion of what you're supposed to be doing in order to achieve a supposed end, then it's going to seem like work, mm -hmm. you know? And so like we, we eat the pizza, we enjoy it. There's no guilt involved. And then it's back. It's, it's not even like that that's off course. Like that's, that's a part that is of, healthy in that instance. Right, right exactly, right. exactly. Um, and the other thing about, and this may tie into your, the question you just asked, but I think a big part of the problem that we face in global culture today and what makes this extra hard is that to, that, to your very question about like, well, what, what's, what's the purpose, right? What, why are you doing all this? What's the aim as we've been discussing? If you can't, if, if, if the validity of the aim can't manifest itself in value in your life, then its motivating force is going to be much less. And by that, I mean, like you and I may have a certain degree of autonomy or alignment with our work and our practices and how we show up and how we provide and, and take value from the world, let's say, right? Like it, the more 
broadly speaking, like the more independently you can pursue the things that interest you, right? Maybe it's because you have a whack of freedom money. Maybe it's because you've just, you know, you recognized it earlier and you dedicated yourself to something you love and you've wound up in a career around that, whatever the case may be, you're aligning, like you're stacking all of those things up so that they all feed in and amplify one another. But if you're stuck in a career track, a job, a lifestyle that you hate, and that, so like you, you may want to do all these things, but it's toward perhaps an aim that doesn't actually uh, cohere that well with like what you have to show up and do on a regular basis. Like the gulf between those two can obviously detract from the motivation of it. And so that's why, like when we talk about health, it basically, we're just talking about living. Like what is, mm. what is your approach to optimizing your experience of life or consciousness? Like, that's what it is. It's not like, how often do you go to the gym and what do you eat? And then you go right. sit in an office from nine to five in a job you hate and get blasted on, on the weekends and have terrible relationships, but I'm healthy. And I, you know, I run a hundred miles a week or whatever it is like, that's, I don't, that doesn't sound like health at all to me, you know? So <laughs> me for me, <laughs> it's always been, and you know, when I've been least um, satisfied in life, it's been when I've been trying to stack up and I'm, I've almost always tried to maintain a piece of that picture, right? Because if you let the whole picture go, then it's a really disastrous, you know, scenario. So even in those periods, like in career wise, I was really unsatisfied and it made me very unhappy. I tried to maintain the other components because at least that gives you a buffer, right? At least it doesn't like cause things to spiral too far down. And like, you can just, you can tread water as it were and wait for a different domain of, of that mix to improve. But when you can, but I think the goal of everybody is to, and maybe this is the point of establishing greater health and strength and clarity of mind is in determining what it is that your aim should be. Like what experience of life are you seeking and what experience of life or, or awareness or what type of perspective would benefit you the most, or would you enjoy the most, or would allow you to extract the most of your potential. And then once like, and you're not going to get like a, at least I don't think I never did get like a super clear, well articulated answer to that question. And this is why like incrementally pursuing these things when you get a, an inkling or a sense that they are contributing to something that feels good or positive, and then trying to refine and stack them and refine and stack them and refine and stack them until over the course of time, an experience of life manifests that's better than it was five years ago and better than it was 10 years ago and better than it was 15 years ago by virtue of the fact that you've been pursuing this thread in every domain of life. And, you know, so hopefully it seems to me that an optimized life would be one where you've uh, constructed a lifestyle that is optimally supportive of an aim that you find optimally meaningful. And if you can do that, I think what the experience that you, that will be delivered to you will be one of peace and joy and happiness, basically. Yeah. I think you brought up a good point where it's like, you know, that old saying it's possible to have everything you want and not be happy because it's possible to want the wrong things. Um, and I think part of health is revisiting that picture, right? Like that picture inevitably over time, starts to get a bit pixelated and blurry. And at that point, you can either um, react to the world 
and do things that make you feel better in the short term because the lack of clarity is is i would say a source of suffering right um and so and it's energy intensive to bring that back into focus right that you talked about how these disparate parts if you're like doing a lot of things right but you have a job that just you don't find meaning in that is a source of suffering and so you have a choice you can either um spend time with yourself to get better re resolution in that frame right like the, the self-awareness piece the meditating the like really thinking about the bigger questions in life it's like am i actually pointing my energy towards the right do i want the right things um, the things that I think will make me happy are those actually things that truly matter um, in life uh, or the things that I've been programmed to think matter and work towards. Mm -hmm. And I think part of health is actually reevaluating that frame on a regular basis to determine whether or not you're still, um, you know, like approaching the lighthouse or if you've gotten off track. And the other thing, too, like back to your point about, you know, watching UFC fights and crushing pizza and it's not about never getting off track. Getting off track is part of the adventure of keeping on track, right? Mm -hmm. um, and and you can't talk about any single behavior out of context, I don't think, with health, right? Because, you know, running 100 miles um, and destroying your body, someone might say, well, that's not very healthy. But if that's like the culmination of a huge life goal that gives you the confidence to be fearless in pursuit of your goals, it is really healthy. Right. Yeah. And so it's not out of context. We can't say if something is healthy or not, um, because the person is the one who must determine if it's healthy. And that has to be based on what their aspirations are in life. And exactly, um, exactly. exactly. Yeah. Like, does this this is a, does this allow me to move more expediently or wholly to that aim? Like, because right. as you say, like, what are the drawbacks of of eating pizza instead of, you know, steak and liver, let's say, well, okay, more carbs, maybe some more artificial ingredients in there, more, you know, processed, whatever, whatever. What are the benefits of having a great night, you know, together and, you know, just the endorphins and the happiness and the, right. the strengthening of bonds and stuff that results from those experiences? Like, yeah, they're pretty difficult to compare, which is why, you know, we all have to make those choices for ourselves, you know, and I think also it has to be said, like living in, I'm not a huge, um, like, I guess when, when did like biohacking really come on the scene? Like I, I got into it in like 2012 or 2013, you know, and <clears throat> there's a, there's some people in that, um, industry or space are, are very much on the longevity side of, of things and trying to like extend life as long as possible. That's never really resonated very much with me. I mean, perhaps it's just the chaos and uncertainty of, of life that like, you know, you could be walking across the street and get hit by a bus. So like, I, I don't think it's that rational to sacrifice too much now for the future, but you, you have to be very I careful agree. with how you mediate that, right? Because there, there is obviously a benefit to pursuing, pursuing things that are worthwhile can take a lot of work and time. And you want to make sure, as we've been discussing, like you're optimizing your ability to move towards those things. But it's um but doing everything at the expense of longevity it's like well what like what's more important something off like a, a state that you may arrive at 40 years from now or the state that that's available to you right now and right. that's obviously not to say like don't plan and don't have ambitious goals that take time to actualize but it's like i'm more intent on trying to foster the state of mind that I, that most uh, that that I most desire right now for the ends that I'm trying to achieve, it just so happens to be the case. And again, perhaps this is just uh, 
you know, one of the things about the universe and the human body that they tend to promote longevity as well, right? Like right. if you're taking care to of yourself in the way that I've been describing and the intent purpose is for, you know, greater conscious clarity, stable mood and ability to perceive truth, you know, whatever. I know that that's somewhat of a vague aspiration, but um, if you do all those things, they're probably going to promote longevity in your body too, right? Like I can't think of really anything that, that I do to promote the former that, that detracts from the latter. I mean, yeah. they're pretty congruent in that way. Yeah. It's almost like the more stark the trade-off is maybe the less close you are um, to, you know, a natural wave. Maybe you're playing the wrong game, right? If you have to sacrifice your quality of life for five years to get an extra five years, it's like, well, number one, is that trade-off worth it? And number two, is there a better way to play the game so you don't have to make that trade-off, right? Yeah. Like you said, if you're doing what aligns with your um, desires in life and aligns with your physiology, then that automatically, the output of that is a high quality life and a long life. Um, and they don't have to be mutually exclusive. And I, I don't know, I find the obsession for indefinite longevity to be an interesting, I think, manifestation of a fear of death and how, you know, like we, we want to be God. Uh, we want to circumvent natural law whenever we can. And, uh, you know, like this health network that I work for, we talk a lot about death and how in this whole notion that acknowledging that life is short is actually what makes life meaningful. Mm. Uh, and, and not trying to circumvent the laws of nature, knowing that in order for life to occur, death must occur. Right. And this is like a conversation I often have with people who talk about never killing animals, um, in terms of what they eat, which, you know, I respect everyone's opinion, but I think we should have a good conversation. And this whole idea that with that life can occur without death is a, is not truth in my opinion. Um, and you know, obviously we get close to animals as a more sentient form of life than say a plant or a tree. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, I think living a high quality life without trying to hack our biology to allow way more than what we're given by the universe um, is, uh, is not something I'm interested in either. I want to live a good life while I'm here, but I do want, I do want to die. I actually do want to because, you know, like, like I don't want to do it tomorrow. Um, yeah. But that's an interesting, you know, our avoidance of death, I think, is an indicator of a, uh, a chink in our cultural health armor, right? Like not acknowledging death as real is a, shows that we are not at a level of health that we can have those discussions. Um, yeah, I think that I think that our, our, you know, as Bitcoiners, I'm sure we share an opinion that there's many chinks in the current cultural milieu of pretty much every domain. And, and you know, a, a, a healthy relationship with one's own mortality is definitely one of those. And, you know, it, it it's understandable. Right. And but I think, you know, this and again, we lots of spiritual and religious traditions explore this territory and we've dismissed them, uh, broadly speaking, as a culture to our great detriment, in my opinion. And so I think, you know, developing a healthier relationship with mortality is definitely something that leads to a greater experience of life in the here and now. I also think, you know, this whole like wanting to live forever, freeze yourself, longevity thing is you know, it seems like a fairly strong expression of an egotistical view of, of oneself, you know, and I mean that not in, I mean, ego is a diff, somewhat of a difficult thing to talk about. Like there's, I, th 
being aware. Why do you think that is? Well, I think because a lot of people hear the word ego and they, they hear it as someone being egotistical, like I'm the best of that, whatever, versus like ego as the individuated identity of like of yourself rather than let's say the eternal eternally connected aspect of yourself and you know i i'm sure we'll discuss psychedelics as part of this conversation but that's that was definitely one of the practices and experiences um, that helped me understand or at least think i understand perceive a difference between the two right? An individuated self, John, these preferences, these identities, these likes, dislikes, experiences, all that kind of stuff. And very useful for moving through the world, you know, moving through the physical world. Um, And I love to be competitive and like in your face when we're, when it's right to be so like if if me and you are doing hill sprints or something like that, I'm going to like, we're going to throw down and I'm going to be jeering you the whole time. Like, that's just the way it's going to be. And yeah. obviously playful, but like, let's see who's the best is motherfucker. Like that's, that's how I want to get down. But the other aspect of that is that there, you know, I've, I felt I've had experiences that have uh, revealed to me that beyond this, these individuated physical forms that we have, an aspect of what animates them is eternal and undifferentiated from that which animates everybody else. And um, that, that changes your relationship to your mortality because it, it causes you to think that even though my physical body will die at death, it seems to be the case that there's something about me, perhaps the most fundamental thing about me, that persists in some way that I can't possibly know or understand, even though I might have, you know, thoughts or inclinations on the matter. And, um, and yeah, that, that, so when I say that, you know, wanting to extend life is egotistical, what I mean is that it's, I think it's an over identification with the individuated uh, identity of the self rather than the eternal and, and unitive aspect of the self. And I think, you know, it's been, very helpful in my life to, you know, mediating the two is, is kind of the spice of life, you know, to, to determine how to take the, the wisdom and the love and the, you know, everything else that's wrapped up in that eternal and, and united aspect of ourselves and transmuting them into action of an individual being is like, Again, we're in we're in the the, the territory of the, the great sages and mystics and all these people throughout the ages that try to comment and, and discuss these things. And it's a constant mediation, for, if for no other reason, even if you sorted yourself out perfectly, because as you said before, our environment is always changing and that requires constant adjustment on our behalf to try to determine how we're going to conform to our environment optimally towards, again, moving to... Uh, achieving our aims or moving towards our, our highest aims. Um, and so uh, you like, for me that those experiences and that perspective on things has taken the edge off death a lot, you know, because I don't think like w- when I die, I don't think anything's really going to be lost. And I'm not trying to be like self-deprecating or overly humble here. Like I, I know people that love me will miss me, but when you boil it down, like, what are the most fundamental aspects of who you are? It's certainly not your name or your country. Those are are abstractions, right? It's certainly not the sports team that you support. It's certainly not whatever preferences you have. It it seems to me to be the case that it's the 
it's the degree to which you've been a vessel for transmuting and expressing those highest ideals or values throughout your life. And as you, as we explore these, these spiritual or theological domains, we try to determine what the primary components of them are. And it seems to me that some of the primary components, and this is a non-exhaustive list, of course, but things like love and truth and freedom and beauty seem to be like fundamental parameters to our experience of consciousness or reality itself. And it, it seems to me that we're talking about highest aims in life. I think it seems rational to me that one's aims would be to transmute, conform, or be instruments of expressing those things as much as possible through life. And if one does that, then, you know, when one goes away, well, the, the vessel is gone, but those things that they've been transmuting, for one, the source from which they stem is not gone. And to the degree to which they've been a transmission mechanism for them in their life, so has the transmission gone through them to other people and, and it lives on in that way. And I think this is, this is what a lot of those um, traditions and, and writers of the past have been attempting to articulate or referring to when they discuss immortality. I don't think it's, you know, you know the, the individuated identified self exists in this world or the next in its current form. It's that if you play the game of life correctly and you cohere with the most fundamental aspects of reality or consciousness or God correctly, then when you die, the degree to which you've done that will persist and carry on, you know, when you're not around anymore. And just like a, a, a perhaps a, it's always going to be oversimplified when you're talking about such, such concepts, but an anecdote that first made me really realize this, and this was even after kind of having that separation of, you know, individuated ego and eternal self and psychedelics and stuff, but it was a friend of mine <clears throat> excuse me, her grandmother passed away. And she was like, one of these like sweetest old ladies you've ever met in your life, right? Like she, I, I would go over, and she would be so kind and sweet and gentle. And, you know, to boot, she actually, her like thing, she was an artist, and she would just paint mushrooms, like that's all she Easy. would paint, you know, so maybe when she was younger, she got a, a, a dose of like, you know, the, the, the touch of God or something like that, who knows, but and but she was also still like she would rib you too right like with a ton of love but she would like make fun of you and then laugh her ass off and then like and she passed away and it was just so evident to me that the love that she expressed in her life and in her form was passed on to her uh children and, and grandchildren like it was just so evident i could see it all over them like they right. they got it from her and they were now you know um expressing it in their own lives and it just it became so palpable or salient to me that like that's how it works and that's that's how we carry on and that's because the other aspects of ourselves are so transient and ultimately so unimportant but those right. things are the, of the highest importance and they they are or they can be eternal if we orient or construct our behavior correctly in this life and, you know, so for that reason, it, it, one, it, it helps constitute that aim that we've been referring to throughout the conversation, like what, what should be, be the aim? I think it should be being a representat representative or vessel or aligned or embodiment of those things. And then 
uh, and, and that helps you live a, a good, a right, a beautiful life. And then when it comes time for that to be over, you can take solace in the fact that nothing of import is really going away other than just, you know, another reflection of those things into the world, which of course is perhaps cause for some sorrow, but perhaps even more so celebration when it's all said and done. Um, but I, you know, that's my perspective on mortality and it, it, I feel like it's helping to orient myself more truthfully while this physical form is alive. That was really well said. And I think the, you know, the nugget I took from that is like, even when your biological form expires, the impact you've had on the world lives on indefinitely and focusing on making a positive impact, um, while you're here and not worrying about what happens when you're gone is what allows, you know, it's almost like compost, right? Like a flower blossoms, it dies, it becomes the raw material for other flowers to be made. And without it composting, those other flowers mm -hmm. can't live And this notion that, you know, that old lady, um, left behind raw material that will live on perpetually through the people she's impacted. And then it becomes a question like, did she actually leave or is she, or did she not? And it's all, it's all based on your perception. Right. Um, and one thing that kind of came to mind, like a, one of the big mental models I use with health is that, um, if you want to go super zoomed out and really simplify things in, in, into, uh, like a mental model of health, I feel like health fundamentally comes through connection and and lack of health is the result of disconnection and we talk about connection and disconnection is when you're talking about ego that it made me think of this as like connection to three elements connection to ourselves connection to others and connection to the broader environment right to nature let's call it um and when we disconnect from ourselves and and don't have a good relationship with ourselves i think that's when the ego starts to kind of like creep up um and I agree that, you know, ego is a hard thing to talk about because people love to look at things in binaries like, oh, that person has no ego. It's like, well, they do. And they, the reason you probably think they have no ego is because they have a really good relationship with their ego, right? Like they, they talk to it regularly and they acknowledge it as real and they ensure that they are driving the bus and the ego is not driving. Um, and I think this whole notion of if we don't connect with nature, if we don't connect with others and we don't connect with ourselves, um, then health will always escape us. And those connections, like they, they're not, they don't cost money, right? Like we're always being told that this thing that costs money will solve this problem. Uh, when the most fundamental element is like, just reconnect with what it means to be a human by shedding all the programming and just getting back to default settings, getting back to like having real meaningful relationships with others, um, getting back to having meaningful relationships with ourselves. Right. The amount of people that do shit to their bodies because they don't like themselves is like, well, that won't stop until you acknowledge the relationship that you have with yourself. Um, but I'd love to explore this this idea of health as, you know, as Bitcoiners, we understand proof of work. Right. We were the concept and the importance of the concept um, is, is known to a lot of us. But I, I really feel like health is. Um, proof of work, like health, like it's funny, I've started to view health through the lens of a Bitcoiner. You know, how everyone views Bitcoin through whatever lens they come from. If you're a financial person, you view Bitcoin through a financial lens or, you know, et cetera. And starting to view health through the lens of Bitcoin, I'm like, holy shit, there's a lot of natural laws that seem to, to show up. Um, and one of them is proof of work in, in as much as this, the current state of your health is the proof of the work you've put in to take care of yourself. 
So I guess, what are your thoughts on the notion of health as proof of work? And how can you unpack that for someone who maybe isn't like maybe defined conceptually, what is proof of work? And then in your perspective, uh, do you view health as proof of work? And if so, sort of like maybe unpack that a little bit, because I think it's a it's an interesting concept in as much as you can't cheat and no one can do it for you. Um, and there's no faking it. Right. And I think that's such a that is truth. That is truth. It's funny, you, you talk about truth and it's like, my brain's going crazy of like, how do I define truth? What is truth? What? <laughs> Which is not maybe a conversation for another time, but yeah. What are your thoughts on health as proof of work? Well, I mean, you could say truth is what fosters maximum integration between all disparate patterns of existence, something like that. You know, mm. the thing that makes everything click or integrate most, most optimally. But, you know, we, we, maybe we come back to that one. I, before I address the, the question, I want to touch on a few of the things you said. Like one, you mentioned having a positive impact in life. And I think that's a, 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 a fine aspiration. But I also, like, because I've been, you know, for a long time, I guess, wrestling with this concept of, like, right action. You know, like, you can, you can intellectually understand a lot of things, you know, you can read a book on philosophy or theology or mystical treaties or whatever. And, and you can think like, I get that. That makes sense to me. That lines up with, with how I think, but how, how does that process of transmutation from insight to action take place and how should it take place and how should you constitute it? And, you know, back to that, what I was saying about like those potentially fundamental constituents of our experience of reality, you know, and, and again, that might take some unpacking itself, but just for, for the sake of this little uh, tangent, we'll just leave it for now and, and say, like, I, it seems to me to be the case that if you can allow those things to orient you, like if you can, and I, I think subordinate is a good word to use here, because basically you're, you're taking the ego separate identified self and saying, rather than making that the end to which all of my efforts are directed, like that thing accruing things, it seems to be more rational and ultimately better for it to be the case that the primary end to which my actions are oriented are being of service to those principles or values or ideals that are truth, freedom, love, beauty. And again, perhaps there are more and we, maybe we can explore that. Um, and so it almost seems to me that if the, the primary aim should be to do that, because what results from that will be the most positive impact that you could have. If, if the assumption about those being fundamental in some way is accurate. And again, I guess my, my underlying position at the moment is that that is the case. And so, uh, you know, I'm not opposed to like doing intentional and specific positive actions, you know, and, and in many cases, they may actually cohere with something like love, you know, subordinating yourself to love. So they may be the same in some sense. But I think my highest aim is, is not to have like a positive impact in the way that we might conceptualize it in modern culture today, like you're doing a lot of good stuff for a lot of a lot of people. It's properly orienting yourself by and and to those values, and then allowing the action that's 
and then allowing action to flow naturally from them and knowing that that's the best impact that you could possibly have, like the actions that, that, that result from doing that. Um, and then I wanted to touch on something that you said about our relationship to ourselves. And of course, I agree that, you know, we're our own worst enemy in many cases. And we're, we create cages of our own making a lot of the time, even as fucked up as the world is. And, you know, we're a lot of the things that we're trying to rectify through Bitcoin and that kind of jazz. Like the reality is, is uh, even though the world's not perfect, like most people can can do a lot more for themselves than they are doing, but they, they impose artificial restrictions on themselves and artificial stressors and all that kind of stuff, myself included. I'm not speaking from the point of view of having transcended all of this. And but, at certain um, periods of time, those are probably constructive, right? Like we do it for a reason. Yeah, yeah, sure. And we just and that, forget to take them down once the reason no longer exists. Right, and that's the, the, the trick of, of mediation, right? Like when to float in and out of a, a, terp of, a, 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 a certain mode of being. And I, you know, I actually think this is, this is one of the things that characterizes in my mind, you know, the concept of like a spiritual master is not like, oh, wow, he meditates, meditates for 12 hours a day in a ashram in India. It's that, you know, I think in my mind, a spiritual master is someone who's most capable of embodying the most appropriate version of themselves for whatever moment or environment they find themselves in. And, you know, again, to oversimplify that, I would say like an easy example would be if you find yourself in a fight, are you like, uh, uh, let's, let's put it this way. A lot of people for reasons of comfort and fear and conditioning and habit and all this kind of stuff, they end up having a singular rigid identity, right? And so my identity in this situation reacts this way. And in that situation reacts this way. And in that right. situation reacts it's this like way. A script. Right. But I, I think because we're so fluid and because we can embody so many different um, frames of mind or perspectives as human beings, it seems to me that like a real master is the one that based on the circumstance can embody the aspect of themselves that's most optimized for handling that experience in the best possible way. You know, and so if you need to show up and be like, you know, a ferocious fighter in one moment, because that's what the the moment calls for being able to fully embody that without any distracting aspects of yourself and then move right in or not right in, but like, and then have the capacity to move into, you know, the most compassionate, empathetic understanding aspect of yourself when you're confronted with, I don't know, a child who's just lost a parent and is in that kind of situation. And then who is on stage in front of a thousand people and is attempting to articulate their life philosophy to them and being able to enter into that aspect of themselves without any interrupting thoughts or other, other, other aspects. You know what I mean? So as someone who can like adaptable. Yeah. Like someone who can really has the capacity to optimally adapt to any circumstance that might, they might enter into. So, I think that is a great definition of, of spiritual mastery, not, you know, someone who wears a robe or meditates or anything like that. I guess my question with that, because the first thing that came to mind when you're talking about that is like a chameleon, right? They're adaptable to whatever I, situation. You're right. But and sometimes to just a funny anecdote, like because this is something I try to establish in my own life or become a person that's capable or maximally capable of that. Sometimes I, I say like, like as a pejorative, I'm like, because it can feel 
maybe because of our conditioning, it can feel artificial. Like, am I, am I just a phony, right? I show up differently mm. in every place. Right. That is was that, my question. That, How do you maintain you? Right. And I think yeah. <laughs> the, the sequence I went through was like, well, if you have those supreme aspirations, like you mentioned, truth, love, beauty, health for me is a big one. Um, if you maintain that, that's what allows you to be adaptable. It's almost like you keep what's um, important to guide you, but you shed all of the superficial things that allow you to adapt to the situation, right? Like it's like, cause you still need some sort of anchor, right? Otherwise you're just literally going through the whims based on the world around you and letting the world tell you how you should be. But I think mm. the key element there is like, as long as you are pointed towards those virtues and keep them hierarchically as a priority through all your actions, then you have a broad array of actions that you're capable of, but you maintain the core, the core, right? The core is unwavering. Um, but all of the layers that people often adopt as rigid, you are able to transcend because you have such clarity of the core. And I think clarity is the most important thing, right? Like, how do I act in this situation? Well, you know, like th literally this happened to me during my involvement in the convoy where like the world was caving in around me. And I said, okay, I just have to double down on my values of love, integrity, honor, and respect. If every single one of my actions revolves around that, then I don't have to make a judgment on every single action. I don't have to uh, evaluate every single one because there were so many things to evaluate. And I knew that if I just did that, whatever the action was, if it was guided by that core, it would, it would work out well. So yeah, thank you for I think, putting I think it in that, the, those words. I think that's the idea of, of liberation, right? When, you're, when your actions are so subordinated, in fact, to, to use more narrative language, when you sacrifice yourself to those virtues such that mm. it is, you are going to sacrifice your time and your energy and your attention toward them, um, you know, that's, uh, that liberates you from the concerns of, oh, was that the right thing at the right time to do this? Was the outcome what I wanted it to be? All that kind of stuff. It, it, and I, I, again, we, we, you know, I keep saying, I'm making this comment, and maybe I'll stop because it's probably getting annoying, but like I, this, this, this concept shows up so much in, in ancient literature, literature by people who have grappled with these ideas before, because if you can conform to those things that are, let's say, maximally true, and good, then you're liberated from the incessant uh, interrupting or intervening aspects of yourself that cuts you off from those things. And then again, mm -hmm. you just like, and you know, you're, you're, you're set free in a sense. And you mentioned, you know, a few minutes ago, how, why people are so, you know, hard on themselves is conditioning plays such a big part of it. And it, it really does, obviously, you know, and I often use an oversimplified example, but to say that, if you or I were born not in Canada, but in the Amazon basin, like we would be very different people, you know, we would have different preferences and we would like different things. And we would think different types of women are attractive and, you know, all, all the, all the rest of it, like all of our preferences right. would, would, would be different. And so, but it begs the question that you just asked, like, well, who are you? Like if you're moving or, and, and back to the point you made about like the chameleon, it's like, well, if you're moving through all these things, like, yeah, who are you? But you, I, I totally agree with how you, uh, your comments on it was like, if you have that 
that solid core, which, and that's been the core you've been refining your whole life. It's almost like right. the more you can refine that core, the more clarity you can get around that, the more almost faith you can have that that is the most true, then that is what sets you free to be what's most appropriate in every situation, right? To, to embody that core in its various aspects in every situation based on the needs of the circumstance or the environment or the situation. But the, you know, the fact is, is that most people because of conditioning and deprivation and fear and so many other things, they construct a singular identity that they think is, is most secure and operable for a very specific and narrow anticipated or expected or desired course of life and they stick to it for all those reasons because it's so terribly uncomfortable when that when that veil is first pierced and this is one of the uh prime benefits i would say prime one of the initial benefits of of psychedelics is that it can help you it can transpose you temporarily into an entirely different perspective that doesn't identify with all the different things that you've used, all the different associations to construct your own identity. And, it, and so it, it delivers to you a perspective that is unconditioned versus the, the conditioned one that you've built up over the course of your entire life. And it can be terrifying because all of those things from the time you're a baby to the time you're 40, they're constructed basically to generate psychological security for you so right. that you can you can get through the chaos of existence and of life you know without falling into pieces right without breaking into pieces and so there's there's a utility of it but you have to i think it's incredibly beneficial to not let it become you to just realize right. the utility of it as we've been saying lean into it when as and when is necessary and you know this idea of ego death is obviously is very commonly reported in, in psychedelic literature. And that's basically what's happening is the conditioning is stripped away. The identity is stripped away and people feel, and the reason why it's so terrifying initially is because people feel so naked. It's like, right. And, and, and I was just going to say this, that. The, yeah, this was, this was my experience. The first time it happened to me, I mean, you're literally there in this frame of consciousness that you've never inhabited before. And you're saying to yourself, who am I? Like, what am I? I don't even have a solid enough conception of myself to add, to have a frame of a point of reference to ask that question. Even I'm, I'm just, does, I'm, I'm not even there. And it's terrifying. It's terrifying. But also, if you can, well, if you the liberation like comes, <laughs> yeah, the liberation comes later, right? If you have the, the courage to stay with that and to to pursue that and to push through the terrifying aspect of it. What I think you find is that what lies on the other end of that is a profound liberation. And, you know, speaking in terms of the experience itself, uh, I think, you know, you, you, a lot of people report connecting to that, you know, united or eternal energy or source that we were referring to referring to earlier, but then you come down and you come back down into your, your more identified ego self and you're, reflect on the experience and you try to integrate it and all that kind of stuff. And what I think happens is for a lot of people, even though you, you go back into the, into the individual, individuated form or self, you now have an appreciation that there is another perspective available to you, that there is another component to you that, you know, all these different things that 
you use to hold yourself in attention in order to engage the world are not necessarily real and they're not necessarily permanent and you can you can maneuver them and you can refine them more than you might have thought before and i think that that experience as terrifying as it may initially be grants people the the well it motivates them and inspires them to relieve the the rigidity of the grip that their identity holds on them such that they, they may become something for lack of a better term far far better far more integrated far more truthful ultimately yeah someone made a great analogy to me one time they said in order to change your clothes you got to be naked at some point and it's like the whole notion <laughs> that great. we we wear you know the clothing is all of our programming and what we think the world wants of us often um and it gives us a sense of safety right like it lets us be a human and not be scared that people will judge us you know we're wearing the clothes that you know culture seems to want me to wear um and the courage to be naked at some point gives you the optionality to pick a new wardrobe and you know the fear of being naked limits people from being able to realize their more actualized self right it's like you go like psilocybin i had this um experience one time where like i almost got a vision of me sitting in a box and then psilocybin basically dropped the edges of the box and freaked the shit out of me because i was like everything i thought was true is no longer true so i you know you have two options there you can either run for the hills and just wither in your in your fear or you can say well the world's a lot bigger than i thought and i have a lot more to learn and now at least i know that what i was confining myself to is not the limit through which i can explore it doesn't mean i know what to do or where to go but i just know like a a a truth was revealed to me and now it's up to me to put the work in to make sense of that truth and see how it reorients my view on life and what i do with my time um and yeah. i think the the whole notion that you know the hermit crab as you grow the, as the hermit crab grows it must seek a larger shell if it doesn't it gets constricted and suffocated by the current one um but to make it to another shell you have to go without protection for a certain period of time and i think when people develop the courage to to do that um despite it being scary it always results in a broader perspective and one thing i wanted to ask you about and something i'm thinking about a lot these days because now i'm sort of you know especially with family i'm really starting to tune into the language people use when i have health conversations with them the language they use um has so much of an impact to tell me of like how they think of health right and what I've started to parse. And it's like, once I saw this, I, I couldn't unsee it is this whole notion that when it comes to health, it seems like people have one of two views. They are either the hero of their health story or they are the victim of their health story. And it, it's my observation that it's, they are mutually exclusive. Um, you'll have stronger victim or hero tendencies within a health story, but the language people use, like um, I got a bad back my back is bad. I'm, I, I can't do anything about it, right? I got a bad back versus right now my back is a bit sore. I'm figuring out how to get rid of it. Like the, the subtlest, and I used to be a physical therapist. So I, I wish I would have had this perspective when I was working with people, cause I would have probably seen it way more blatantly, but just like with life, we are the author of our story. Um, and I really think health is the ultimate hero's journey because it is like, it's it's hard in a world that revolves around disease which i think is a derivative of the money we use to be quite frank um 
But what are your thoughts on this notion that everyone must decide whether they are the health, the hero of their health story or the victim? Um, and I think we all started out as victims because my programming, even in physio school, was that people's bodies are shit. It's my job to get people out of pain when they inevitably develop pain. But the story I started to develop when I was treating was that actually our bodies are insanely advanced, like literally so advanced that we take them for granted. I kind of wish we it broke down as soon as we started not treating it right because people would tune in a lot more. Um, but this whole flip of the body went from something that is doomed to break down. My job is to help people reduce their symptoms when they have them to the body is an insanely advanced piece of equipment. And all we have to do is figure out what we're doing to fuck it up and stop doing that. That was a radical mindset shift in, in how I go about helping people with health because I don't tell them what to do anymore. I just point them in the right direction to do the experiments they need to do to expand their understanding. So, you know, has it, it almost seemed like the, the day you said, I, will you buy me this lighter? If I don't eat junk food for a month was when you went from victim to hero, it seems. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's hard to disagree with that. I think, uh, as you were saying that, the thought that came to my mind the most is that I think the the thing that will determine wh which one of those attitudes you take is the meaning of the aim, right? And so, like at that moment where it was the lighter thing, like the meaning of the aim was the lighter, and that was sufficient to motivate the work. And then, as this journey has progressed, I mean, again, as we've been discussing, like the aim is now some sort of spiritual aim, right? We've been discussing these, you know, orienting our perspective around the highest values that at least, or principles or virtues that at least we can ascertain. And by virtue of the fact that when you do that, reality seems to output something beneficial. It seems like doing like those values or principles cohere with something unseen and unknowable about this reality that we experience. You know, and so per pursuing uh, the means of optimally establishing a relationship with those aspects uh, of the grander, you know, structure of reality, as it were, um, is a pretty, a pretty high aim, as far as I can tell. And so that seems to be uh, more than sufficient motivation for the work required to pursue that aim. Uh, but I think, you know, it seems, I don't think it's uh, controversial to say that in the world today, there seems to be somewhat of a meaning crisis happening. And, you know, someone who I recently spoke to on my podcast, John Verveke has, has done a wonderful 50 part series on YouTube mm. about that. And he's just a brilliant. I've watched some of it. It's pretty, in it's general. powerful. Yeah. It takes a while to yeah. digest. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he, I mean, he, his familiarity with like, anyone who's ever written anything interesting about philosophy or <laughs> theology or, or meaning is just mind blowing, you know, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I think that's the case, right? I mean, you know, God is dead, right? Nietzsche's famous uh, phrase, and we seem to be in a more secular materialistic sort of paradigm prevailing in the world today, even amongst those that claim to be religious, if I can get away with saying something like that. And I think one of the, I mean, that, that, probably is causing a lot of problems, but maybe none greater than the meaning crisis is that people find themselves in a world where they have more knowledge about the material workings of the world than ever and more access to 
the, the wonders of the world and the conveniences of the world, but they're, they seem fairly cut off from the thing that makes uh, all, you know, the thing that makes the material, material world worth engaging, let's say. Um, and the, I think a lot of people, if, if we're just focusing on this, you know, health aspect, which again, as we've been discussing is like, perhaps there's, there's nothing but that, right. Even though it's more narrowly defined in, in, in culture, like in culture, we've been defining it in fairly broad terms, um, and fairly fundamental terms. But I think if you don't have a higher meaningful aim, right. If you haven't been able to construct that then why wouldn't you default to the victim? You know, because everything is difficult and overcoming an injury or lethargy or time or stress or horrible circumstances requires your effort and attention. And I mean, it just seems to be the case that there's insufficient motivation for a lot of people to do that. And I think that's being reflected and represented in how like what people look like in the world today and i don't just mean their physical no. form but like what their what their whole composition of their life looks like it seems to be fairly representative of lacking at least the highest meaning that might be available to us as human beings like certainly most people have some meaning in their life you know be it children or artistic endeavors or you know like and, and children is obviously a fairly high one. And thank God for that. Cause maybe that's why like, you know, the world hasn't descended into complete meaninglessness because at least that still remains. Right. Uh, even if the notion of God, you know, is not, um, not so popular in the current era, but um, so I, I think it's about that. I mean, I think it's, if, if, if the aim, and even if you have like, even if, kids are entirely meaningful to you let's let's take this you know someone who's in their 60s now and their kids have long left the home like their health doesn't really amplify the aim of having a strong relationship with your children at this point unless maybe you came from like a super fit family and you always do activities together and then it's right. probably the case that you've maintained your fitness so you can still do the family activities with them so like i think for a lot for a lot of those people that take the victim track on that dichotomy or dynamic it's because there's insufficient motivation to move towards a meaningful aim yeah i couldn't agree more and one of the biggest things i ask people if if they were having a if someone wants to improve the state of their health and is authentically curious to take action ready to take action uh one of the first things i ask is like what's your motivation why are you doing this and uh when i was a physical therapist, I saw the, I saw one interaction made this land so hard for me. Uh, I had this, like, she was in her mid eighties, very mobile, um, for her age, right. I'm used to seeing like people in their fifties that are incapacitated now because they just sit all day. Um, and she had this one little issue with her knee and she wanted to get rid of it. And I said, you know, it's going to like, when you come in to see me, this is not where the work happens. We troubleshoot to, to determine what you're going to do in your life to fix this. So like, why are you doing this? And she did not skip a beat. She said, I want to play with my grandkids on the floor. Um, and I never want to be a burden to my family. She spat that out, right? Like she didn't even have to think about it. It wasn't even, and, and she only saw me like three or four times and I never had to see her again. And she did everything she was supposed to. And she, she took full radical ownership of her shit. And she knew that there was a lot at stake. Um, and it's like, you're the less 
of a, of a, of a deeply rooted motivation that you align with in your soul um, to, to help you enhance your health, the more discipline you need, right? It's like what you lack in meaning you must make up for in discipline. Um, yeah. and it's a losing battle. And it is because discipline, there's no, you know, there's just, it's so energetically intensive to force yourself to do something that you don't fully align with your whole being. Um, and so I think people just need to, you know, the, the work with health often is like, what meaning do you have out of this? This process will require work. It will be difficult. You must have enough meaning to over the hardest challenge you see, you, you face must, your motivation must be higher than that hardest challenge. Right. Otherwise that can be what is your insurmountable obstacle. And, uh, you know, the people who I know who, who it's funny, like the people who are the healthiest, you know, on all fronts, spiritually, mentally, physically, when I have conversations about health, they really don't have a whole lot to say because they're like, I'm just living my life. And it's almost like the, uh, living a life of purpose allowed health to be a byproduct. It allowed yeah. health to not even need to be a focus. Um, maybe it comes into focus at periods where health is starting to escape you and you, and you feel the physical or mental ramifications of that. Um, but it's almost like the people with a, a deep, deeply rooted sense of meaning and purpose in life don't have to think about health because health is simply a symptom of what is going on. Yeah. Um, and, and I think this, this, yeah. this speaks to the, um, like over weighted materialistic view that prevails in large part today is to say like no health means my body is fit and strong and, and and i have long i'm promoting longevity that's what health means whereas we've been discussing this whole time and to the point you were just making like no health is your experience of life and perhaps there's perhaps no greater component of that than your source of meaning what drives you to even do anything ever. And if you lack that, then no amount of, you know, time on the treadmill or personal trainers or anything like that is going to deliver to you what you're seeking. Right. And, you know, again, I do think we, we exist in a time where there's a meaning crisis, but how many people are willing to go to their personal trainer, uh, psychotherapist, Phys uh, physiotherapist and and when they ask like well what are you doing this for say i don't really like nothing who cares i don't want pain like, that's it yeah and and it's like if if that were true because people say well i just don't want to have back pain anymore it's like well yeah fair enough of course you wouldn't but like what does the word want mean does it mean it's something i want delivered to me absent the requisite like work or effort to achieve it Cause I like that, that just seems like a wish, not a want. If you're going to tell me that you want something, it means by default that it's something that you're willing to en engage the effort and work in order to achieve. But I, you know, I think it's like, um, it's almost like a spiritual Rubicon that, that people just have a very hard time crossing to say to themselves more than anybody. The reason why I don't do all of these things that like I at least recognize would be ideal if I was doing them and if I could just tick a box to have them delivered to me or wish for them, I would wish for them because I lack sufficient meaning in order to devote myself to them. And, you know, how many people want to admit that? Nobody. Because once you mm. once you cross that Rubicon, once you admit that 
your life is bereft of sufficient sufficient meaning to to pursue it then what are you doing <laughs> and i think the answer is evident all over our as we like to say in bitcoin fiat culture today where in order to deflect or ignore the uncomfortable answer to that question we fill it up with distractions of various kinds be it food yep. entertainment stresses of life like anything give me anything but confronting that question because i'm not ready to admit to myself what the answer is and i'm too scared to embark on that journey yeah and sometimes you know I, i've known a lot of people who require a catastrophic event in their health in order to refocus on what actually matters right like that is a they need that because they have not experienced enough mental physical spiritual pain to push them off the cliff to change because change is hard so right now the suffering i'm experiencing isn't bad enough that i'm that i'm looking at the potential for change at a deep level um and you know this whole idea of i just don't want back pain and people not really doing anything i think that is a derivative of this once again victim mindset like it doesn't matter what i do every time i work on this the back pain comes back nothing i can do works so why bother doing anything just give me the pill right and the the unfortunate reality is like i also know a lot of doctors and i love them all and they're all amazing humans but when you work within this system that is fundamentally disempowering whereby you have a problem i i get paid to pretend like i'm solving the problem for you is fundamentally disempowering because it says in order to solve this problem you must come to me i think it's a straight up proof of stake my stake is that i have this piece of paper that says i know the thing and you must come to me to solve your problem because you are not capable of solving your problem and i'm only capable of solving the symptom i'm not even solving the problem because if i solve the problem i stop getting paid it's super fucked up so this this whole fiat this world of centralized medicine and i, I think also medicine is fundamentally different than health Right? And we often conflate the two. Oh, we have a healthcare system. We don't have a healthcare system. We have a disease care system that is predicated on never solving the problems because it exhausted of its revenue sources. And until we get rid of high time preference, fiat money, and the foundation that that creates for all business endeavors within the world of health, or really just sick care management, um, very hard to make, to make any meaningful progress with health. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like the reason that I stopped working in health as my primary outlet and started working in Bitcoin was this, I had this realization at the start of this year, this mental model I use now is called the layer cake, where it's money, governance, education, health, and each layer is hierarchically divide, derived from the layer below it. So I'm working at the top superficial layer, right? And I, I like the dichotomy of lowercase h health is health of the individual, uppercase h health is health of the individual the collective and of the planet right so i used to mm. write health and climate but capital h health is like health of the of the people of the collective and of the environment they're all kind of like healthy people take care of their home and this whole notion that okay we're working really hard to convince the luckiest people in the world in north america to take care of themselves when in reality health is a derivative of education if you know how to take care of yourself then you can work towards health. And if you know what matters, then you can at least hopefully adopt health as a meaningful cause to put your energy and time towards health, education, governance, the people in governance determine what education we get and money determines people who get into governance. So unless we, if the bottom layer and that layer cake is fundamentally flawed and creates a 
set of perverse incentives that permeate the whole stack, there's no point in working on health with broken money. And in fact, solving broken money creates a whole different incentive structure that by default, health will be a symptom if we fix that problem. And it's like, you know, we love that trope, Bitcoin fixes, fix the money, fix the world. And I love what Michael Saylor says, where he's like, it might not fix everything, but it fixes at least half the problems. And, you know, to me, I was like, well, once I saw that, I couldn't unsee it. So clearly working on Bitcoin is a more important and pressing, you know, um, element uh, than health. And I actually think working on Bitcoin to me really just means, you know, the way the reason I loved working on health is because it really means taking a complex and making it simple and actionable for people. I think spreading Bitcoin really is the same thing, taking the complex, making it simple, actionable, so that people feel empowered to, to approach this process, right? Like health is a process, understanding Bitcoin process takes a long mm -hmm. time, has to be low time preference. And uh, yeah. Well, you know, like it's, it's to, to that layer cake uh, structure you were just explaining, you know, as we've been discussing this whole time, I mean, it's really just optimizing the experience of life all the way down you know and as yes. we have what we've been what we've been saying about uh integration right like and how all these pieces fit together most optimally but the kicker there is how what that optimization looks like is necessarily defined by the aim obviously and that's what we've been discussing a lot as well and this is why i think you know like when we talk about integration and we talk about optimization, all this stuff, we have to look toward the aim. And this is why these philosophical and theological discussions are so appealing to me and important because that's the source of the why. That's the source of the aim. That's the source mm -hmm. of the meaning, which will dictate all the optimization downstream of that. And what I'm, what I'm super excited about, you know, with a truthful form of money like Bitcoin, is that I think that coheres more so than any other money we've ever had and more so, and perhaps even more so than any idea we've ever had with those fundamental principles that we've been discussing, truth, freedom, connectedness, you know, and another a synonym for connectedness, you might use love. And I, and so it's very interesting that, well, I think it's a representation of those things, but the broader point is that like we're all of this optimization, the, the whole point is just, optimize the experience of life. Okay. Yes. What do we need to do that? We need to know what the most meaningful aim is. And we've really gone off course. It seems to me as a species on this earth in having clarity around that. And one of the things that I think Bitcoin is going to bring back through a variety of ways, not just by how it removes a lot of the detritus or distortion of information from this massive global organism that's communicating and, and trying to find value in its relationships to one another. But as I have written a little bit about, I think it may also be kind of like an archetypal representation of the value that accrues to those very principles when they're most represented in the world. So whether, whether we are representations in our actions of being maximally truthful, pursuing maximal liberation from the things that cut us off from ourselves and from other people, and pursuing a maximal absorption or subordination to the idea of love, for example, uh, I think that, uh, that accrues value to ourselves, like that perhaps is the highest value or experience of, of a perception or a perspective that we can have. And it seems to me that Bitcoin 
is accruing value so rapidly because it is the highest fidelity representation of those very principles or values in the interpersonal world, let's say. And uh, that's a wild notion because <laughs> that, that representation has been characterized in a variety of myths and stories and narratives, religious and otherwise throughout time as the central cultural hero, you know, the one that we're, our society is most familiar with is Jesus, right? It, it's the transmutation of those principles into form. In the case of narrative, it's the transmutation of those principles into a, into a character who's representative of what it looks like to be an embodiment of those virtues or principles and how they might act and how we might, how we might learn and, and follow that action, let's say. I think it might be the case, and this is like the, the time in the chat when I throw down my far out, you know, cosmic comment, but it might be the case that Bitcoin is a literal real world instantiation of what it looks like when those principles are represented in their most pristine form. And the good that Bitcoin is doing and the value that it's attracting and the ways in which it's changing all of us, which it is obviously dramatically doing for, for many of us is reflective of the power of those ideas being so represented in the not only conceptual, but in the quote unquote physical, the interpersonally tangible world. And who the hell knows what the result of that is ultimately going to be, because it's a if any of that is even remotely true, it's a, a fairly momentous event, to say the least. So, dude, yeah, yeah. It's like a mic drop moment because <laughs> it, it it really is like in and and obviously everyone has their own subjective experience of life but you know that old saying where like you don't change bitcoin bitcoin changes you i think is a reflection that bitcoin is like this magnet and it seems to the gravitation of this magnet seems to be a great aligner for people like to really bring things into an aligned stack being the embodiment of a set of values without even, you know, like Bitcoin culture is its own thing and it's many things. And there's many, there's many subcultures within, within Bitcoin. But, you know, if you ask someone, what are the common threads of Bitcoin culture? They often say similar things, right? Like truth, freedom, um, honesty, you know, these things. And, and once you, it's almost like by default, whether you realize it or not, the values you adopt in your life end up being an approximation of the values embodied in the medium of communication you use and with value that's money so the 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 values the fucked up values of the fiat world have permeated into individuals by default because if, if you use a form of money um and you want to avoid the cognitive dissonance of admitting that that money is has a fucked up set of values, then you automatically will gravitate towards the values of that money and react to the incentives that that money creates. And this whole notion that like the longer someone learns about and acquires and understands Bitcoin, the more their life view and their value structure starts to kind of like just align to be, to fit in parallel with Bitcoin is like, it's this magical thing that it's, it's so hard to explain, which is why I think these conversations, the conversations you have, the writing that you do from an extremely, you know, I would even say it's, you know, spiritual level of uh, zooming out to really focus on what, 
what truly matters? Okay, there's like, it's like onions. Like you go right to the core of the onion and it can seem abstract because no one's gone down to that depth before. But that's really the conversation that needs to be had to put what is happening on the periphery into context and be like, oh, okay, well, based on that, this makes more sense now. I was focusing on like the outer layer of the onion, but when you get down to the core, it's easy to see how the outer layers develop based on that core. And it's a magical thing. It's like, what a fucking time to be alive, dude. It's crazy in the grand scheme. It's incredible. But, you know, you mentioned earlier about how uh, the language we use can reveal things about how we're thinking and our perspective and stuff. And you use the term that, like, I see things through the Bitcoin lens now. Well, what if I see things through the Christ lens? Is that not, you know, basically being a follower of that kind? And is it not basically recognizing the representation of certain principles within that lens and wanting to adopt it for myself because of the benefit that I believe will be derived from, from doing so. Mm. And so, you know, I, I think, I think that's what's happening for a lot of people. You know, I think, I think that's a process that's underway and, you know, uh, a while back you, you know, you asked about proof of work and we never really came back to it, but like the whole, like when we talk about, well, actually I'll pause that and I'll say like, you were, you were also saying that money is a reflection of those values. And I very much agree. Like every action we take is a reflection of the values or principles that inform that action, right. That constitute kind of our will and money is the means of basically pushing our will out into the world, having our actions kind of reverberate further afield than just our own physical domain. Like if I, pay you to do something then I'm temporarily pushing my will through you and you're agreeing to it for a variety of reasons. But the point is, is that the values that animate the action that I'm choosing or the action that I'm attempting to uh, push through you will be ref- like are reflected, right? So like if I go out on the street and punch some dude in the head, like there's certain principles wrapped up in that action that we could tease out. Likewise, if, you know, other actions would be emblematic or reflect, or we would be able to tease out higher principles and values like the ones we've been discussing. And money is a means of, of transmitting them further and wider than previously possible. And what, what makes Bitcoin so interesting is not only that as a system itself, it reflects those values, but it's also a pristine carrier of those values. Because as you were saying, there's no exogenous in, information in those signals that's that's perverting or distorting the signal, i.e. someone else's will through the creation or expansion of the supply or through the, the friction that might be caused from uh, intermediaries of various kinds. Like it is pure action-derived signal of values and principles that, that animated or that fostered or that, that inspired that action. And so we were saying before about how the anecdote of the grandmother who kind of was a, a vessel for love and it was represented in her children and grandchildren. I mean, it's very much a similar process whereby the, the principles that you now express through your market action, i.e. the way you spend money, will be represented and reverberate through the market as a result of that. And the re, you know the reason one of the reasons why I get so excited about what's going to be revealed as we further move into a Bitcoin denominated world is when all of our relationships are constituted on those terms and 
what each of us really, who we really are, not who we say we are, and not, not how, who other, how other people distort our expression of who we are, but who we actually really are based on our behavior is going to be able to be transmitted. And that's the basis on which we're going to be able to compare things and determine truth and interact with one another and develop relationships and determine what is most meaningful and what is most beautiful and all of these things. And that's the best you can hope for. Then it's just up to us to try to, you know, extrapolate from ourselves, like the, you know, the, all these things that we've been talking about, what is health, that optimized experience of life, sharing that and integrating that with the broader collective and seeing what can be built up or what manifests as a result of doing it on those terms. And if you fundamentally believe that, that people and reality or the universe or God or whatever word you have for it is good, and I think that is a, a fundamental belief of mine, then you should be very excited by the prospect that it is going to be more ably it, it, it now has a, let's say, a bigger door to emerge into the world. And that's very exciting. Yeah. It's like Bitcoin is now a, a previously inaccessible portal for humans to actualize to their highest potential. Mm -hmm. and, and without that, we've always had a artificially imposed limitation um, in how much human flourishing can actually occur um, on Earth. And not only that, but it's this revolving incentive of continuing to push the boundary of what we thought was possible. Um, yeah, it's so, that's it's the so, way it seems it's, it's hard me. to sit in it sometimes where it's like, oh my <laughs> God, this is like, <laughs> it's like, I think you said it, it's like the more you learn about Bitcoin, the more you realize how much more there is to learn and how much more impactful it is than even what you thought, which you thought was the limit of impact. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's, I can't remember like in my, maybe my pothead days, like, you know, early teens. Um, I can't, you know, you watch all those like famous pothead movies. I can't remember which one it was, but like one of the guys turns to the other, to the other one. It's like, I think you just blew my fucking mind. You know, <laughs> I, I feel like the more I, I, I think about and write about in these concepts, like, you know, maybe that's a bit extreme, but like it, the, these fairly profound insights seem to be increasing in frequency as this path right. is pursued around trying to understand the implications of Bitcoin and how it connects with all these other meaningful areas of our lives. Like it's just, it's pretty much a daily thing, you know, you just be out for a run or out for a swim and it'll like strike you and you'll be like, whoa, like I, never, <laughs> yeah. I never saw it that way before. Uh, but I, 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 you asked about proof of work a while back and I said I'd come back to it. So just to, to put a capstone on that one, I think it's the, the, the interesting analogy, as far as I can tell, or the most interesting analogy, not analogy, uh, similarity perhaps, is that when we do anything, when we act, every act is a sacrifice, right? Because we have limited time, we have limited energy resources, and we have limited attention, right? The opportunity cost of doing one thing is literally everything else that you could possibly do in that moment. Yes. And so every action we take is sacrificing, but sacrificing to what? And the answer is it's sacrificing to the aim of the action, or it's sacrificing to, yeah, I mean, pursuing the aim or, or representing, uh, the value inherent in the action. And so, and this is somewhat repetitive of what we've been saying, but I think it's interesting that the mechanics of value is like you sacrifice 
and you get something of value in return. Okay. Well, then if we take that to the extremes, it's like, what is the, what is the ultimate sacrifice I can make to receive the ultimate value in return? And it seems to me that this is basically the underlying mechanics or structure of religious narratives. That's what it's trying to kind of convey and saying like, and, and they use that language. And I, I think, unfortunately, because we're in such a maybe literal or material era, or maybe this has kind of always been the case, because I think you do have to understand these at a fairly deep level to see it this way. And, and also, maybe I'm wrong, but I think most people take the literal meanings of so many of these you know, various religious and spiritual texts throughout time and maybe fail to see the, the deeper meaning. But to me, what it means is that you determine, basically you, you give as much as yourself that is possible. You determine the thing that's worthy of giving as much of yourself as possible to it. And as a result of that, you gain the maximum, like that thing in its highest form. And so even if we kind of use the religious um, uh, take on this, and if we, instead of using it as like, I sacrifice myself as in I martyr myself and I, you know, am absorbed into God as a result, if we kind of take it down a level to the language we've been using, it's saying, how can I, op how can I maximally subordinate myself to the highest values that I can conceive of, as we've been discussing truth, freedom, love, beauty, goodness, what have you. And so it seems to me that proof of work is just that the mechanics of that. It's saying, you know, you if you sacrifice some time, some energy, whatever, to a certain end, you will be rewarded for that. And the reason why Bitcoin seems to be operating in this somewhat like of an archetypal capacity is because it's sacrificing like the primary constituent of existence almost, which is energy toward uh, establishing an incorruptible form of truth, which, which, which grants liberation to those who avail of it and which constitutes a network of relationships that are not disintermediated by anything. And if we go all the way back to what we were saying before about like that ego self versus like eternal united self, like, you know, a, a definition that I sometimes use for love is and like a non-romantic love is the recognition of a lack of separation between all people and potentially all things. And so that's the type of network that is constituted via an incorruptible truth. And so you have, you have again in Bitcoin, the rep like the archetypal representation of the mechanics of value itself in the physical world, which is you sacrifice the most fundamental thing there is to be sacrificed, which is energy toward the end of truth and let's say love in terms of the, the connections that it generates. And should we be surprised that people are seeing it and being profoundly impacted by it? Because this seems to be the mechanics of value taken toward its maximal conceptual ends and done so out in the physical world. And we might say that if it was a purely non-interpersonal conceptual, uh, if we were conceiving of that in a purely individual and non-interpersonal way, we might characterize that as the 
religious or theological or spiritual mechanics of value of I'm going to completely subordinate myself to being a vessel for those higher principles, ideals, or values, which we've been discussing. But in the interpersonal world, um, in the cultural world, let's say, or in the not like not exclusively conceptual, what would that relationship look like? Or like, what would that, what would the, that system or those mechanics look like? And, you know, again, this is a wild statement, but it seems at least current thinking is that it seems like it would look a lot like what Bitcoin looks like. Yeah, I would agree. I don't know if that, that one came out super clear, but yeah, no, no, no. I, I, I'll have to listen to it again to let it really marinate because <laughs> I was kind of thinking of what the fuck am I going to say after he's done this? <laughs> um, but I really think, you know, this, I don't know. My, my mind is really spotlighting on this notion of truth where like I consider health, someone who has lived in true alignment with their bio, with their biology. Um, and this notion that the aspiration is truth, right? We want to know how does the world, instead of seeing the world as we are, see the world as it is, right? And, and reality, seeing reality as it is instead of as we are, um, that the process of trying to approximate that is the quest for truth, right? And this notion that life is a quest for truth has so many different applications, Right. Whereas health is the question within the context of health being living in true alignment with your biology and even on an outer ring, living in true alignment with um, the will of the universe or with fate. Um, then the work you put in is with the aspiration of truth. And, you know, with Bitcoin, the work you put in for someone to, to compensate you is like truth money must underlie a society that wishes to approach truth. That's what came out of that for me. And sure. the whole idea that for the first time ever, we have truthful money that is incorruptible, that actually can be a true emblem of, of, of can be an accurate emblem of truth, uh, means that our entire notion of what life is and how life works and how we operate individually and collectively is going to be completely recalibrated um, and so much better to a, to a mm -hmm. better world, to a, a world built on truth is a better world and is a healthier world, is a more meaningful world because all of a sudden you can ascribe meaning to things um, that you know are true, not because someone said they were true. And once you find out they're not true, then it's like, well, I can't find out the truth because I keep listening to all these things and none of them end up being true. So. I think there's a certain faith in that, though, which is why we might not be able to dispense with that thing as repugnant as it's come, become to modern culture. Because if you say that, like, you know, that is one of the highest aims and that, you know, lives will be better and culture and civilization would be better if, if we're oriented around and have the means of communicating and interacting on the basis of truth. It seems to me that a fundamental uh, proposition there is that what's true is good mm. and that seems faith-based to me and i don't mean that in a derogatory way whatsoever I, I mean i said earlier that i think that has to be an underlying aspect of my worldview is that if i if i'm pursuing truth as the highest well good uh then there has to be an assumption that it's good to do that and right. if 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 
if true is like if the if part of the definition of true is how things are and i i understand that like it's difficult to nail down objective truth because like you know we're a we're not just observing the world, we're a part of it. And, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot wrapped up there. But again, like if, if we're just going with the approach that what's true is good, I think we have to have a faith that uh, what is, is good. And pursuing a, a as great an understanding of what is as possible, including ourselves, including the world, including one another, uh, is good. Then that I think that has to mean that we're making a commentary on the isness itself. And that it is it is somehow good, and it somehow leans toward good and desires good. Now, and I, and I think you know that's obviously been uh, represented in a lot of the writings of the past. Now, perhaps unfortunately, the 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 tools and the culture and the conceptual frameworks that were available to them at the time have led those ideas to being misrepresented in subsequent times, or again, as we've been saying, overly literally interpreted and, and that kind of thing. So a lot of people today would, you know, soundly dismiss the notion of, you know, a, a white bearded guy in the sky that has come to be known as God and, you know, perhaps for good reason in that form. But if you strip away a lot of the, the cultural language used to, to communicate those ideas, and you just try to get to the what's underlying them. Well, in that case, I think there's a lot more, uh, they have a lot more credibility than uh, the current culture seems to be um, giving them credit for or, or, or recognizing. And um, it seems like it's something like that. It's something like that the thing, the isness, you know, another one of the things in the psychedelic experience, when you're, when the, the self dissolves and you like, you're trying to conceptualize what you're in the presence of and simultaneously connected to like one of the terms that often comes up is like it is itself which makes no sense but it's like it's the only way you can find the words to articulate what what you're currently experiencing and uh if you if you i think if you're going to orient yourself in the way that we've been articulating the itself that whatever that thing is that we're referring to when we're trying to put words on it, it's it, I think we have to ascribe goodness and a desire for goodness or like an intent for goodness to it. And then, you know, all the stories that get built on top of that um, try to convey that in various ways. And maybe they don't do such a good job or, or maybe they do because some of them are fairly sticky and they've stuck around for a long time, but uh, that's that's one of the things that I find really interesting about what's happening today. You know, a lot of Bitcoiners have um, have been re like appreciating, let's say, uh, the insight and the wisdom contained in Christianity, and so a lot of people have been um, going back to that faith or like where their family was, they grew up in it, perhaps, and going back to it, or for the first time. And I think that's amazing because uh, people are finding an avenue for determining and conceptualizing greater meaning in their life. And that's absolutely wonderful and lovely. However, I think that what Bitcoin and what it's inspiring in all of us is going to do is uh, allow us to interpret and articulate and 
perhaps reconstitute a lot of the meaning and insight and wisdom contained in the various traditions of the past and represent them and understand them in a higher fidelity form and manner today to our great benefit because they obviously are an integral part of the human experience for a reason. And I think our hubris and arrogance in the modern era has caused us to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I think they need updating. And I think we need to be, we need to appreciate the errors and inconsistencies and all the rest of it of the past that have corrupted those institutions and, and the power of those pursuits. But I don't think we can do without them as we've been discussing in this conversation. And I'm really excited for uh, how this Bitcoin lens that we're all seeing through now and how we are being upgraded and evolved as individuals is going to um, contribute to a greater clarity to bring a full circle around those ideas and, and hopefully come, well, hopefully continue to derive greater clarity over that which is most meaningful to the and and have that be reflected in our lives and perhaps there's no greater endeavor to undertake as a human being than that yeah and it's almost like you know people talk a lot how bitcoin will um eliminate institutions that we currently have in place today and i've kind of always looked at it as bitcoin acting as a forcing function to realign the institutions towards truth and um, values that we want to hold as a society, like values that reflect truly valuable, um, things like love, like actual true virtues that matter, right? Like a forcing function rather than just a, a nuke that takes everything down. And like one of the most common things that I hear when, when I ask people, like, like most people know what they need to just to kind of bring it back to health. Most people know what they need to do to be healthy. Like if someone says, I want to, I have this problem and you ask them, well, what do you think you should be doing to get rid of that problem? They can usually tell you the right thing. Um, and so when you ask, well, why aren't you doing that? Most of the time what they say is I don't have the time. There's not enough time in a day to do this. And, you know, just to get back to what you're saying about you read a story. Um, I like to, I, now I just spend a lot more time deciding what things to read than actually reading them. And when I read them, I read them two or three times over because every time I mine more meaning out of it or I, or I extract something different. And this notion that you can read the Bible and you can over-focus on the words and be blind to the meaning of what those words as a cohesive narrative actually mean, right? Like if, mm. I, if I have a certain amount of time I need to read something, I go through, I, put the word, I download the words into my brain, but I don't really extract a whole lot out of it. Whereas, and you know, if I have a sore knee, I just do whatever I can to get rid of the knee pain, but I don't inquire as to what is the source of my knee pain? Like, what is the lesson here? The lesson is not to do some shit to get out of pain temporarily. The lesson is, what am I doing to my body to generate this knee pain? And this whole idea that Bitcoin, if you adopt it, if Bitcoin, if you adopt Bitcoin in your life and you choose voluntarily to store your life energy in Bitcoin, the choice to use money that does not steal your time ends up creating a surplus of time to find more meaning in life, ends up creating a surplus of time that allows you the freedom to learn how to take care of yourself. And, you know, that that notion that something brings you to Bitcoin, but by aligning your life energy with Bitcoin, you get this massive dividend of a surplus of time to spend how you see fit. And the funny thing is, 
is most of the time when you go to Bitcoin and you are given this surplus, Bitcoin shapes what you choose to spend the surplus of energy on. And they're usually things from my experience that are more truly important in life, like health, like my relationships. And they tend to, to not be things like fame and power and money. Um, and once again, it's just Bitcoin rubbing off on people. Bitcoin not only granting the surplus of time, but also shaping and molding what you choose to spend that time on. It's like it's influencing humans, myself, starting with myself, but the people around me that I witnessed it, it's like, it's influencing them so much more than what they might realize. And I think it unlocks a huge amount of potential to find more meaning, to explore uh, our curiosity, um, because we we are not forced to to adopt a scarcity mindset where I only have a certain amount of time in the day, I must do the essential. and usually the essential is I need to feed myself, I need to pay my mortgage, all that kind of stuff. And when we unlock this like secret of abundance, it's like, well, what do I actually want to spend my time on? Maybe I should think about what I want to spend my time on before spending my time on it. And that is just, that's an incredible thing to kind of observe in the people around me. I don't know if it's just my own microcosm, but um, yeah, it's incredible. Well, you know, I, I agree and I see the same thing. And um, <clears throat> it's interesting that, you, you end up valuing the thing that gives you that opportunity immensely, right? And so then that causes you to, you know, the, the things that can't really stand up to that value become relatively diminished, right? So all those like frivolous things that you don't really value, they might have been impulsive or ego-based or whatever before, end up kind of disappearing from your life. And the things that, the, only the things that contend, that can contend with such a a high value thing remain. And as you say, like the things of greatest value, as we are perhaps rediscovering are the intangible things, their health and their relationships and their beauty and their, uh, you know, family and these sorts of things that sometimes there's a cost to them, but very often there isn't. And so like you end up getting all these Bitcoiners that are basically living like paupers, but they're the most, you know, (laughs) happy and vital people in the world because their, their mind, their consciousness is oriented by the things of greatest value and that's the game and you know so again like you know it's crazy that this internet protocol is the thing that's bringing that all together and fostering it but also you know we talked about before how um orienting yourself to these higher conceptual values is liberating in a way because it it relieves you of the the need to uh you know, hyper assess all of your different actions and behaviors and, oh, did I look good or bad here to do this? Because you basically have a faith that if you align yourself to those ideals or principles or values, that what happens is, if not the best that can happen, which I think it probably is, it's acceptable to you. And that's what it is. And I think Bitcoin, and so that's a, one of my favorite quotes, my favorite quote of all time is the truth shall set you free. And obviously it's derived from, you know, uh, biblical uh, reference but i think it's represented in that example and i think to the one that you were just uh, articulating and the and why bitcoin uh, is so much value is being ascribed to it and how that is reorienting our value hierarchies and re- re- reorienting our perspectives and therefore reorganizing our lives let's say is because it is the highest form of inter- interpersonal truth that we can uh, that we have been able to establish and it's setting people free. As you just decided, they're having more time in order to determine what's most meaningful. And there's this feedback loop of 
of refinement and value and meaning that's just accelerating and accelerating and accelerating. So I think that quote, the truth shall set you free is as you know, is extremely true in itself. And I think it's represented in perhaps it's, it's highest form in uh, the religious narratives, the, or the kind of distillation of those narratives into more secular language regarding values and principles. And it's also most represented in what Bitcoin is and what it represents to people. Powerful dude. If there was a church where you could just go and listen to preachers talk the church of Satoshi, and you could just have a lineup of preachers preach the good gospel of Bitcoin. <laughs> like I would, I would come to every session you did because I seriously think that like, yeah. you know, it, it is, I think having a foundational curiosity of the stories that have shaped humanity that, you know, are the religious texts, right? The, like the, um, the tomes of human wisdom that, I think get grossly misinterpreted, um, but that contains so much essence in there. Even if you don't ascribe it to a specific religion, understanding that these stories have clearly had meaning if they've been passed down through so such a long time period. And it's like anything, like you, you, you extract what is relevant and meaningful to you to be able to shape your understanding of the world. So you don't have to take everything literally, or you don't have to take everything period. But I think having a foundational curiosity of these biblical and religious texts allows you to see Bitcoin, um, allows you to see these religions through the lens of Bitcoin, allows you to see Bitcoin through the lens of religion. And there's like so many, it's almost like there's, there's like all these disparate dots that often I've, have been in my brain. And it's like Bitcoin is connecting all the dots to form a cohesive network of like, this is different than that, but clearly they have a lot of similarities. And to me, the, the building of those connections is gaining a better understanding of like the rules that govern the, the world, right? Not just physics and math, but like so many commonalities of, you know, like Dr. Jack Cruz talks about nature as a decentralized health network. And that blew my mind because he's like, we've gotten centralized with medicine. We've given too much power to too many people and it's easily corruptible. Whereas nature is this decentralized network that offers us health when we connect with it. Um, and just like Bitcoin is a decentralized monetary network, viewing nature as a decentralized health network completely changed my perspective on how I think about health. It's like, well, I just have to reconnect with the network. And that, you know, that includes taking plant medicines, eating food that nature provides, spending time with other humans and animals, which are part of that network. And it's just, it's just crazy how much Bitcoin has changed my view of everything in the world. And like you said, allowed me to drop things that I no longer consider of equal value to spend my energy on and accentuated the amount of time I have to explore topics that I truly find meaningful. And then as I explore them, I find so many more connections with the other ones that made the cut. And uh, yeah, it's... Well, you might, you might say that, you know, both of those things are simply abstractions of something deeper or realer or more truthful, but in forms that uh, allow us to engage them better, you know, because nailing down the constituents of reality is kind of hard, right? But if we can, yes. if they can be manifest uh, in more, you know, uh, engageable, abstracted form, then potentially they'd be more useful or beneficial to us. And you might say Bitcoin is that, you might say the religious stories are that, you might say even human beings are that. We are, you know, transmutations or abstractions of, of something more fundamental 
or, or, you know, more valuable or an integration of that or something like that. And, you know, I think that's probably the case. I mean, that, I guess that's my current working hypothesis is that, you know, those two, particularly the Bitcoin and the religious domain are, are two of the most, you know, high fidelity abstractions, one in the form of story, one in the form of a interpersonal value exchange network, let's say, although it's really hard to define Bitcoin as we all know, um, of those deeper truths. And, you know, what do we say about the things that are most representative of the most fundamental truths? Well, they always wind up in the pantheon of the highest meaning and the, the, like the, the, like words, they always wind up in the pantheon of the ineffable inevitably, because we don't have the language to, to fully describe or speak to what they are, which is why, you know, well, which is why they're perhaps so powerful, uh, but also so contentious because you, right. they can't, they can't be easily defined and therefore they can't be easily maybe defended. But I think what's interesting and what I'm, I do want to try to find more words to um, contribute to the facilitation of greater clarity about what's happening. And so that's definitely part of what I'm undertaking is, is more writing, but I do think ultimately the most, perhaps the most powerful impact will simply be that when people are in the presence of this thing and they engage with it and they receive, you know, a different form of signal, like there's always going to be a form of conscious contribution, which is why like uh, specific articulation or, 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 or sharing a particular perspective or insights on a certain thing are beneficial because then we can integrate them and it helps us conceptualize or develop greater clarity around something. And that greater clarity informs our behavior. And to the extent that it's true, then that's probably good. But what's great about Bitcoin is that like, you don't need to, it seems to be the case that these, these changes in behavior, these benefits that you've been describing uh, can dawn or impact people absent a clearly uh, articulated reason or mechanism why, right? It seems like these changes are just kind of permeating people that are becoming involved or who adopt this thing absent like uh, absent like a specific um, description of what's actually going on, you know? So right. there's, there's, there's this like, there's an osmosis. Like they're absorbing effect. it through osmosis, <laughs> not through understanding. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Dude, that was... Uh... I appreciate you taking the time. We went 15 over, but uh, I, it was a treat listening to you talk. You know, we, I have all these things written down. We didn't cover any of them, but it was for the better <laughs> because I think this is a, these are much more interesting topics, uh, not things that I usually engage with because I don't have the confidence to be able to speak, you know, of them or have a, a, a decent opinion. But um, I really appreciate you sharing your thoughts. I appreciate you sharing your health story. I think, uh, when we share how we came to be where we are, I think we inspire a lot more people than what we think. Um, and to anyone listening, thanks for being here. John, thanks for your time. Um, if you want to support the project, you can head to bitcoinstore.com, send some sass to the QR code on the homepage. John, is there anything you want to say in closing uh, before we wrap this up? It could be about health. It could be about something you're working on or just a thought to give the audience. Just two things, man. One, uh... I really enjoyed the conversation. I love these, you know, I just, they seem, like we said at the beginning, they seem worthwhile, even if there is a certain element of gratuitousness to them, but, you know, they really help me uh, crystallize thoughts that I'm having and, and, 
usually some new insights uh, emerge as a result of them. So I, I appreciate you being a extremely capable uh, and enjoyable partner in that pursuit. So thank you for that. And then I wanted to thank you for um, the work you did during the trucker stuff in Ottawa. You know, like I watched it closely. Obviously, it was dear to my heart because I'm a Canadian as well and had lost a lot of a lot of hope, let's say, in, in that country over the intervening years. And what happened around the truckers was very inspiring. And, you know, watching you be so dedicated and with such integrity, trying to do your best to help out, uh, you know, I just, um, it was awesome to see. And I'm, I'm uh, proud and grateful to know you and I appreciate the work. Cool, man. Thanks for that. I look forward to future conversations. If you ever want to, you know, work uh, get some reps in to work out a concept or talk about <laughs> anything related to health. I am always available. And uh, thanks for having me on your show as well during the, you know, I think everyone, I think about this, you know, a lot of people, what I wasn't expecting is at the conference, a lot of people came up to me and thanked me for the, the trucker stuff. And I was like, how do you even know? Like, I, I was just surprised. It was kind of like overwhelming in a beautiful way. But, you know, the idea that you had me on your podcast to share the word with your audience, the idea that there's a little girl that made cupcakes for truckers, like everyone helped and i think that was the most beautiful part of that event um was like a beacon of hope where everyone could come together and align their energies of something that like really pulled them and um and yeah i think the 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 aftershocks are still reverberating in ways that might not be as obvious in the world of you know like week-long news cycles i think it's easy to forget about these things but um yeah, it was a powerful experience. And thank you for, for, uh, you know, giving it a voice and, uh, for, for all your supportive messages and all that, that stuff. I think it was, it was all done with everyone collectively together. No one person can do, can do yeah. anything meaningful in the absence of others. So, um, yeah, yeah. well, thank very, you. very small contribution on my part, but I, I agree with you that, um, what happened there will reverberate as we've been discussing and anytime things are done, in the name of those higher principles that we've discussed this whole conversation, like honesty and integrity and truth and freedom and love, it carries on as so many, uh, you know, songs have, uh, have celebrated. So I think you're right on that. And it'll be interesting to see in what forms it takes next. So thanks Agreed. again for everything. No worries, John Devon listening. Have a great day. Thanks for listening and ciao for now.